Black lives matter. Black lives matter. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Trying to live my life, putting purpose over profit. Too many fallen soldiers, too many slain prophets. Eyes on the prize, yeah, I gotta watch it. Agents amongst us, get your hand out my pocket. I'm sick with the pet. Brothers and sisters are sick in the pet. Oppressed by the man, attacked by the clan. America's plan, depression sets in. People becoming so hopeless. Said we can't breathe, they still choke us. They put the body cam on, it's either turn off or out of focus. Yeah, another death, another life. They pull the trigger, no thinking twice. Cops be wildin', the killing youth. The new Jim Crow, a different noose. It's the beast, it's the beast, mark of the beast. Cease and desist, increase the peace. Move in silence, don't make a sound. But when they come, stand your ground. R.I.P. to all the martyrs. Say your prayer, Heavenly Father. Black lives matter, black lives matter. All right, guys, it's Tuesday, 6 p.m. We are back for another live episode of The Creative Gourd, and I'm here with Professor Yisrael. Good evening, sir. Good evening, good brother. How are you doing? I'm doing great and very inspired. We have such a treat in store for everyone. I can't wait to get to there. But first, we must thank our sponsor for this evening show, which is a little project that you're fully aware of, which is the Brown Juice Barbershop. Now, one of my favorite things about this show is simply how authentic it is, how needed it is, like it's it's a complete necessity. And I just love how you and Andre, so shout out to Dre, have a great back and forth. You know, you can switch it up from being incredibly serious depending on the topic, but at the same time, you can also, you know, loosen it up a little bit, which I think is cool too. And I absolutely love the the tagline that you've come up with. So I'm going to get that up for everyone. Unless you want to, do you want to say it for the folks mix? Sure, sure. So, you know, pretty much Brown Juice Barbershop, shout out to Dre, uh, my co-barber. Uh, pretty much what our whole philosophy and brand is, this is something that was birthed out of pretty much quarantine. So it was a quarantine project. Um, and it's really about um, fly fashion, deep discussions, um, raw and unapologetically black. It's the Brown Juice Barbershop. And you know what it is, you know, stay sharp, drink neat. Now for amateur drinkers like myself, and I do have to thank you for putting me on to Uncle Nearest. Appreciate that. So I've learned a lot about Brown Juice from listening to the barbershop. So thank you for that as well. Could you let us know what neat and sharp mean in the in the Brown Juice world? Of course. So when I'm talking about stay sharp, we're talking about the barbershop piece. So whenever you want to go get a shape up so you can look sharp, so you can look fresh, make sure your lineup is razor sharp. You know, you can't really see it on my head, because but we won't go there. But, you know, <laughs> back in the day, you know, I still keep it tight over here. Um, but that's the part of staying sharp and drinking neat. Whenever you go to a restaurant, if they ask you for, um, you know, do you want it um, on the rocks or do you want it neat? On the rocks is, of course, with ice, cube, um, ice cubes. And uh, neat is without any ice. Um, so drinking neat means sipping without any ice. So that's what you'll see when we engage in some deep conversations and really explore some things that pertain to diversity, equity, inclusion, justice, um, and just really talk about how we can move forward as a people. 
Absolutely. And I actually have to shout out the Creative Gourd and the amazing audience. So guys, thank you once again for joining us each and every week. We really appreciate it. And thank you so much for subscribing, sharing the video and leaving comments and participating in the in the show because it really does help the channel grow. And we couldn't be we couldn't have this next aspect without you. So Mix, I'm excited to announce that the Creative Gourd officially has a thousand downloads on Podbean. So we have this nice badge here. So we, we just have to say thank you for everyone. And Beautiful. it's pretty dope, I'm not gonna lie. And I just have to say thank you guys. Beautiful. Beautiful. <laughs> Absolutely. So without further ado, Brother Yisrael, could you please introduce everyone to our amazing guest? Yes, sir. So pretty much we are all in for a treat this evening. You just said we got a thousand downloads just now, right? Over the past few times. I have a feeling that we're probably going to get a thousand more after this conversation. Um, mm. It is our honor and our privilege to introduce to you um, someone who is a, uh, a constant supporter of the, of the show, the podcast, which we appreciate. But before I, uh, you know, bring her into here. Um, let me give you a little bit of information about our special guest for the evening. So Dr. Ashley Oliver received her Bachelor of Science in Human Development with a concentration in behavioral neuroscience from Cornell University, a Master of Science in School Psychology from St. John's University, and obtained her Doctorate of Psychology from St. John's University. She's been busy. The title of her dissertation was Shades of Aggression. What role does race play in educational decision-making? Dr. Oliver has experience treating adults and children presenting with various internalizing and externalizing disorders. She also has experience providing school-based behavioral consultation, psychological assessments, and intervention services. Dr. Oliver's research interests are focused on the application of empirically validated treatments for underserved populations. Dr. Oliver currently works and resides in the city, which is New York. It's only one. The city, which is New York. So, Dr. Oliver, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, you're in for a special treat. Dr. Oliver. Hi, Ashley. Doctor, how are you? I'm doing well. How are y'all? Doing well, doing well. Fantastic. Good to see you. Inspired. Just blessed to have you in our presence, digitally speaking. It's awesome. Thank you. Thank you both for having me. I'm really, really excited for tonight's episode. So get into it. Absolutely. Absolutely. So one of the things that I think is very prevalent, and by the way, this entire show is curated by Ashley and her expertise. So we're going to have a great discussion, but this is fun for me because it kind of reminds me of Creative Maestro and makes you know about this. I actually get to, to learn a lot. So I just enjoy doing that. I'm a, a lifetime learner. So I think in our community, we have a, a stigma, right, about healthcare, more specifically mental healthcare. So perhaps we can have a another uh, Israel on the show to talk about actual healthcare in the future. As of right now, mental healthcare and how, for whatever reason, our people don't necessarily take it that serious. And then we have instances like Kanye West prop up and other things of that nature. So is this going to be very therapeutic, pun absolutely intended, 
to talk about these topics with you, Dr. Oliver. Thank you. So yeah, I definitely agree that, you know, mental health is absolutely stigmatized, especially in our community. I mean, I can speak for myself. Um, I am a Haitian American woman. So especially in our black community in general in America, there's a lot of stigma that goes on. And, you know, when we think about mental health and mental health awareness, um, I mean, I'm sure you all have experienced, you know, when, when you are experiencing mental distress, um, you know, you hear a lot of phrases from our parents, though well-intentioned, it's like, well, what goes on in this house stays in this house. Or, you know, therapies for white people, you know, or like, just suck it up, just pray about it. You know, if you're going through something, push through it. Um, be a man, you know, for you guys. Um, you know, well, you can't be going to these types of places. You're not crazy, you know? That's, that's for people who are crazy, not for, not for anyone like us. And so it's interesting to think about how we think about mental health. You know, what do we think? A lot of times when you hear mental health or mental health issues or mental health disorders, sometimes we think about, you know, a homeless man on the street, or we'll think about some rich white celebrity who overdosed on pills, or we'll think about, you know, mass murderers who go into schools and, you know, kill innocent people. But what we don't often think about when we think about mental health and mental health disorders is we don't talk about or think about black single mothers. We don't think about black two-parent households. We don't think about you know the black kid who was on the honor roll. We don't think about the athletes. We don't think about those people. Um, and it's important to reframe our perspective because there is so much that we, especially as black people, living in America, we endure. I mean, we as a people, we are literally, our story is one of perseverance and resilience. You know, you talk about, you think about slavery, Jim Crow, we've lived through trauma, we've survived, we are survivors. And so it would almost be, you know, ridiculous to think that, okay, that has no impact whatsoever. Yes, there is strength in that. There is resilience, there's perseverance. And there can also be some side effects, right? There can also be some things that we, you know, need to unpack with regard to how we are impacted day to day. You know, when we just are said, okay, internalize, suck it up. When we deal with racism every day, when we deal with people that we are seeing that look like us on the streets being killed, um, unarmed men being killed, unarmed women being killed in their own homes, how do we reconcile that? So these are all things to consider. And I think, well, at least my hope is that by the end of this conversation, we can one, open our perspectives in terms of what mental health looks like and what that awareness looks like, and also um, seek treatment. You know, the same way we would go to the doctor if we, you know, fell and injured our knee is the same way that, you know, mental distress is real. And so the same way we would treat, you know, a headache with Advil, we absolutely should be seeking mental health services as well. Absolutely. Um, that's fantastic. And just um, listening to you speak, there's so much richness in what you said. And I know there's going to be a great conversation, particularly if we have questions that are populated in the chat. Um, but you mentioned the word unpack. And I'm glad that you used that word. Um, I want you to elaborate a little bit more so because I know in the space that I'm in, in education, um, I believe that we as human beings are all walking narratives. I believe we all have a story to tell if only someone would listen to it. And I think that no matter who we are, wherever we go, no matter which room we walk into, we carry it with us consciously or unconsciously. 
um, baggage, literal baggage. And in that baggage might be trauma. And sometimes folks might not understand or know that they have certain trauma that they're carrying. And sometimes folks might be ashamed of it. Um, what might be some best practices or how can you encourage people to seek that treatment that you talked about or encourage people to have that conversation with their parent or their pair that thinks that, you know, oh, it's not for you. You don't need that. Toughen up, man up. You know, how about you do that instead? Like go, go work out, like go to go exercise. How do you encourage folks to empower themselves to live that life where they can unpack their traumas and also not be ashamed of doing so? Yeah, great question. I think um, to understand that, I think it's necessary to understand that for my belief, I believe that trauma is by and large the biggest influence of black mental health distress. Um, if you look from a you know historical perspective, you know, there's so much historical trauma. Like I mentioned, slavery, eugenics, Jim Crow, segregation, the civil rights movement. And then you then we talk about, you know, from a health perspective, health trauma. Um, Henrietta Lacks, you look at the Tuskegee syphilis um, experiment, you look at drugs being pushed into black and brown neighborhoods, um, and then kind of fast forward and look at, you know, where we are today. You know, one of the main killers of black women is literally in hospital rooms giving birth because they are not believed and are not given appropriate care um, when they are in these spaces. And so when we look at present day trauma, when we look at police brutality, when we look at um, black and brown women who are dying from things that can be helped, we need to understand how that impacts us. And I think it's, it's important to have that open communication and dialogue starting in the homes. Mm. Um, you know, having that open communication, I think one of the great things that, especially in my household, um, my mother was really, really good at, you know, say whatever you want, now respectfully, <laughs> but you say, you know, say the things that are on your mind, you know, let it be known and not to um, literally handicap your child into thinking that they are weak, especially boys, that they are weak if they cry, that they should not be expressing something that hurt their feelings, so to speak, or they can express that they feel some level of anxiety. You know, a lot of times people will they have a speech or a presentation to do at school and their stomach hurts. And, you know, no one talks about the fact that, hey, that kid might be struggling with anxiety. Um, it's not just a stomach ache. And the way that I think we need to, one, start by labeling things appropriately. You know, so that's starting with using more language, more language to identify emotions. So it's not just how you doing, I'm good. Like, what are the emotions here? Mm -hmm. Good is not an emotion. <laughs> Tell me, like, how are you feeling? How are you actually doing? Um, and, and once we start to have that language and have that education around mental health, then we can go into, okay, what is distressing you? You know, with everything, you know, life, there are ebbs and flows, there are situations. You know, we have good moments and seasons in the same way we have some not so great seasons and moments. And I think that it's imperative for us as a community to understand and say, hey, here's where I need help with and help is not a weak thing. There's actually strength in being able to identify when you need help with something. Mm. And so when we have those moments and we open ourselves up to, you know, it's not just some random outsider coming in and, and hearing our business, but really taking the, the time and consideration to help us work through those, prom those problems. There are so many households I know of where it's like, we all have that crazy uncle 
or we mm. all have that, you know, oh, she just, she's a little out of her mind. Or for example, the family member who was like, well, you know, don't get too close or you can't sleep over their house because, you know, something's going on. Those like unspoken things that we need to really unpack. We need to work through them because the reality is if we don't do that, then guess what? Your kids and your kids' kids are going to be dealing with the same stuff because you, you don't have the tools to appropriately work through that. So to kind of come full circle and, and really, you know, answer your question, I think that um, it's imperative to one, be edu more educated around that and to open it up. You know, there can't be such a fear um, with talking about this stuff. We are not weak. We are strong. I mean, history has shown it. We are survivors, okay? So if that's the case, then we also need to be diligent in our work in terms of maintaining our mental health in all spaces. Hmm. So I think that that is another thing. You know, when, how many times do we have you know, barbershop conversations and, you know, do, do we say to our friends like, hey, man, like maybe you should go talk to somebody, talk to a therapist, maybe go see somebody, you know, try it out and let's see how it goes. Or, hey, sis, like in the, you know, beauty salon, like, hey, I hear what you're talking about and going through and that's some deep traumatic stuff. And maybe we need to work on it. Maybe we need to see somebody and let's work through it together because that's how we grow. That's how we change. Awesome. Thank you. Thousand percent. And thank you for that wonderful answer, Dr. Oliver. And just to add on what you're saying, I mean, especially in our history, our history and our ancestors have endured a lot. And you could arguably say there's PTSD within our ancestry. And like you said, we're survivors of trauma. Right. And at the same time, you can we can also see collectively and anecdotally and also vicariously, there is a lot of strength. But at the same time, there are a lot of side effects, as you said, that often can become hereditary and passed down. So being just like uh, things like Mikhail and I have experienced being in predominantly white institutions, that perspective, that emotional turmoil is going to be completely different. And when you when you normalize seeking treatment, like you said, then Things like undiagnosed trauma can be eliminated, which is awesome, especially for our people. And more specifically, I think people, our people are identifying with the struggle because at the end of the day, you know, pressure does create diamonds. However, we aren't inanimate objects. We're human beings, right? We're not perfect. And being that our creator, and we all believe in a, in a creator and a higher power, our creator even experiences emotions in a very intense way. So it would be foolish to think that us as human beings also wouldn't experience emotions in that very intense way as well. So we're not invincible. And once we talk about it, as you said, and hashtag unpack that, I love that, it will be easier to differentiate and label things appropriately, just like you said, Dr. Oliver, then we will see a difference between depression and things like anxiety when bursting through our comfort zone, which is necessary for personal growth. And just to add on to your point about the home, the home, as we know, should be a place of Zen, of peace, of relaxation. And sometimes in our society, it can be the complete opposite, especially for, uh, let's say, broken homes as well. So being able to distress from the world is incredibly helpful and healthy, and it shouldn't be adding you know, more stress and potentially cause more destabilization mentally and emotionally. 
Yeah, absolutely. I totally agree. And I think, you know, you um, brought up something and, and, and made me think about something as well is the fact that, you know, I was, I was speaking uh, a lot about historical context, but we deal with, and, and we know uh, three of us specifically in our generation, our age gap, gap um, you know, dealing with racism, that in and of itself is traumatizing. You know, when you deal with daily microaggressions, that in and of itself is a burden that is incredibly um, heavy to carry. And when we are day by day walking in this beautiful black skin, as I like to call it, um, we have to learn not just how to survive, because I think a lot of times our practical skills are based on survival, um, but we also want to thrive, right? Like we also want to live our best lives. And that also, you know, involves getting our mental health in the best shape possible. And so I like what um, Claude has also said in the chat is that social emotional education is imperative. Um, there's a, a push I know right now, uh, I am a school psychologist, so I know that social emotional education has begun to be really integrated into school systems, which I think is absolutely fantastic. But I also think that that's so important, you know, not just, okay, this kid is disruptive, he needs to go to the principal's office. Um, why is that kid disruptive? Why is he having a hard time? Why is she having a hard time? What's going on? Um, is whatever is happening in the classroom triggering something? You know, does this kid have PTSD? Is this kid suffering from depression? Did this kid eat this morning? You know, there's so many factors that really go into, especially with our children, um, their mental health and well-being. that we don't just push them into school and it's like, all right, you know, times tables or, you know, whatever work that we need them to do, but also figuring out, you know, what's happening for them. They're people too, you know, smaller people, but they're people nonetheless. And the reality is that we need to allow them to have a voice, allow them to advocate for themselves, allow them to give their own emotional language to what's happening for them, how they're experiencing things. The one thing about trauma, trauma is unique to the individual. I can go through something, you can go through something, and I can experience it in a totally different way than you did and come out incredibly distressed and traumatized because of it. And so that being said, you know, we're often expected to like continue, perform, you know, just do the next thing because that's just how you survive. But the reality is that thing, if it's undealt with or if we don't unpack it, we're going to deal with it in spaces that we never thought it would be possible. And so I, I love that phrase. That's my, my coin phrase that unpack that because it's absolutely necessary, especially for, you know, helping our children thrive and helping us thrive as people. Beautiful, <clears throat> beautiful. I mean, I have a... Uh, a few reflections and remarks that will lead up to a question. Um, but just listening to everything that you've all been saying and just thinking about the space that I'm in in terms of education, um, some of the names that come to mind when I hear about trauma or racialized stress and racialized trauma, I think about Drs. Joy DeGruy. I think about Dr. Howard Stevenson. Um, Joy DeGruy talking about epigenetics, talking about trauma living in the DNA, talking about post-traumatic slave syndrome. Um, Dr. Howard Stevenson really talking about how you can locate that feeling. Like what level are you feeling on a scale of one to 10, that anger, that pain, where are you feeling it? Um, and how, how do you move forward? How do you really resolve that? Um, so I think about all those pieces. I think about our good brother, Sangu, um, who did a TED talk about saying pretty much um, there's no shame in, you know, really taking care of your mental health, um, you know, trying to destigmatize that piece as well. I also think about the moment that we're in right now, 
talking about this pandemic that we're in COVID-19, talking about all the, the civil unrest that is um, a direct result of police brutality, systemic oppression, racism, et cetera, um, the killing of folks by the state. Um, all these things are happening right now. We've seen a number of different things pop up on social media, such as a number of different black at accounts of different schools where folks are really reliving that trauma um, through post and really trying to speak truth to power and let folks know this is what we've experienced. And now it's time for you all to do something because we've unpacked it. We're unpacking it right now. It's time for you all to do something. And one of the things that um, Dr. Howard Stevenson also talks about is racial literacy. Um, so for you, Dr. Oliver, thinking about those folks who right now are looking into getting consultants to come into their schools to talk about trauma-informed education and practices, um, talking about how do you make sure that you know every student in their, their, their life, their livelihoods when they walk into the classroom so you can see them as a full human being and allow them to be their full selves with all wide ranges of emotions? What might be some mental health literacy or what might be some things that you recommend to these educators who are looking to go back to school and do the right thing with best of intentions, but mm -hmm. might, not, not, might not necessarily have the tools and resources to do so? What would be your advice for them? Yeah. So I think that what you're speaking to is being a culturally competent or, or what I like to call culturally curious um, practitioner. Um, the reality is that cultural competence as a practitioner, as a psychologist, as a teacher, educator, whatever field that you're in, um, it's not a plateau that you reach. You don't get a certificate once you do X, Y, Z courses or once you have whatever speech, um, you know, that you listen to. It's a, a daily practice, you know, especially for people who are not of color, have not experienced marginalization and oppression. Um, and so I would really, really urge everyone to engage in culturally sound practices. You know, one of the reasons why I even got into this field, when I started, um, graduate school, 2% of school psychologists were black. Right now, according to the um, APA, 4% of psychologists are black currently. So not to say that someone who is non-black can be, is absolutely going to be culturally incompetent, but the reality is that if, if only 4% of black psychologists are, are available. And we know that in the US population, about one in five adults have a mental health um, disorder. And of that, of black people, it's about 20%, which is about like 4.8, like less than 5 million people. Okay, that's, that's like the state of Philly, Chicago, and like Houston, and, and like the city of Houston combined. Okay, that's how many people have some mental health um, disorder actively. And so what that tells me is, number one, it is imperative when people, a lot of times people don't seek mental health services because of the fact that, you know, people are not going to understand them. Or if they tell the, tell the therapist, hey, you know, I'm experiencing, like, I'm really nervous. I'm really scared. I feel like I'm getting followed around in stores all the time and that the police are trying to kill me. Well, then they're going to be like, all right, you're paranoid and delusional. Um, rather than really understanding, okay, what's the context here? You know, what is your existence in your space? And what is that? Is racism even real? Like we're having conversations about the, is police brutality and white supremacy a real thing? So, so you have to understand from an individualized level, if you're talking about unpacking things that are so sensitive and, and is in a vulnerable space for people, then how will they be treated in these spaces? Will they be believed? Will they be understood? 
Um, and I think for all practitioners anyway, you know, it's not our job to say whether something happened or not. It's our job for if you experienced it in this way, let's work through that. And I think that needs to be the push that everybody feels heard, especially, especially in this climate, that kids of color, black kids specifically, need to be heard, have space to really work through a lot of what's happening for them and that they really, really understand, hey, if you are feeling this way, if, if this is plaguing you, if things are happening that you don't understand, um, that you have a place and a space to go to. A lot of people don't even know that depression in kids looks like anger. It's them throwing chairs across the room. It's not them crying in bed all day. Um, it's typically anger. And so these are important things to recognize. And if, and if kids that go to school that are angry and disruptive in class just get suspended and thrown out of the classroom or get suspended and you know go to another school, then what? How are we fixing anything? How are we repairing? How are we restoring? How are we working through all of these you know, issues? And even with adults, you talk about grown men and women. If they become angry, guess where they're going? To jail. <laughs> so how are we really being restorative in our practices? So I think all of these things you know, come together in how we need to create a new framework in terms of how we practice and the care that we take for people. Thank you. Absolutely. And like you said, Dr. Oliver, it starts in the youth. And as Claude Diz was saying as well, because the first seven years of a, a young mind is probably the most crucial. So when you're talking about things like unpack that and just being able to identify those those warning signs, as you said, because as we know, in most institutions, which are streamlined for the status quo, as soon as you have a like you said, if you uh if you're an angry child and you act out, your trajectory educationally in terms of academia, your career is going to be completely different. Just just from that un inability to understand your your actual plight in that moment, which is unfortunate, but also incredibly detrimental. And as a person who thrives upon creativity, the fact that our children aren't getting the space to create is literally putting them in a mental cell that ultimately serves as a self-fulfilling prophecy that leads them into an actual self physically, unfortunately. Absolutely, absolutely. I have a, I have a question for you, um, Dr. Oliver, and it, <clears throat> it pertains to um, your dissertation. So again, the title of your dissertation for the folks listening, Shades of Aggression, What Role Does Race Play in Educational Decision-Making? And I'm interested because the role that I serve at my institution um, is director of uh, equity, justice, and engagement. And it's, it, it encompasses a lot of different things, but I often sometimes find myself getting looped into conversations. Um, you talked about cultural competency, and in some cases, the lack thereof, right? Um, I find myself getting looped into conversations where folks are talking about disciplinary situations. You also mentioned restorative. So I think about restorative justice. Um, and I see that there are times when people across cultural lines might respond to whatever they're feeling in different ways and it might manifest itself and express themselves in different ways, which might then be interpreted by whomever the person is looking at them as either aggression or anger or someone who needs help and will get that help. And there's a lot of privilege in between those pieces too. But I think about a young black girl, right? Who might be upset and 
her being upset might be um, manifested and shown as being angry. And that person's entitled to anger, at least expressing that emotion. Whereas another person, let's just say a white young lady, right, might not be angry, but is upset and is moved to tears and just cries, cries, cry, right? It's the same type of thing that's happening inside, but they're manifesting their emotions or showing their emotions differently. Can you talk to me and talk to us and the people a little bit about what does that mean? You, you talk about shades of aggression. What what can you tell us a little bit more about or unpack for us um, your dissertation? Absolutely. So um, I essentially conducted a study, um, and what I did was I had a I hired two child actors who were roughly the age of fifteen, um, so the replica of like ni of ninth grade boys. Um, I focus on boys specifically just for you know the sake of this study and hope to expand in the future. Um, but essentially I took two child actors, one white American, one black American. I had them do the same exact aggressive behavior in a classroom setting. Um, so it was the same exact classroom, the same exact desk. They essentially you know, said they don't wanna do this work, crumpled up their paper, kicked the desk, you know, said this is stupid, like got up and left. It was the same exact behavior, it was scripted. Um, so what I did was I, um, sent this out and I had uh, essentially what I call um, special education decision makers um, view this content and they randomly were assigned either the white child or the black child and they rated their level of aggression, how much of a problem it was, um, and so on and so forth um, in terms of if they would have um, referred them for special education, if they thought they had a disorder and which disorder did they have, um, and so on. And so um, one of the reasons why I even thought to do the study was because um, some of you may know that there is incredible disproportionality in special education, um, specifically with African-American students. African-American students ages 16 to 21 are overrepresented in special education categories, especially categories where they're like high incidence behavioral type of categories. Um, so emotional disturbance, intellectual disability, and so a lot of these categories specifically um, are subjective to error um, because they are subjective. And so specifically with African-American boys, studies have shown that kids as young as 10 years old are perceived as less childlike, as guilty, as implicitly associated with apes and are considered more violent. Even their play is looked at as more aggressive and threatening than their white counterparts. And so one thing that this often will lead to is harsher disciplinary practices in the classroom and school-wide. And so within the study, what I found was, and I actually had a, about 600 participants um, nationwide, um, what I found was a few interesting findings. Number one was that although school psychologists and other um, decision makers in special education didn't necessarily view the severity of the behavior as different. So they viewed it as the same level of aggression, so to speak. However, the difference landed in how much of a problem they viewed it as. So even though they viewed the behave, both behavior of the black child and the white child as equally aggressive, the black child's behavior was more problematic. And so one thing, one other amazing finding that I found was the fact that um, the black child was more often seen as being more so below grade level um, 
was more likely to be perceived as having um, needing special education or a more um, restrictive school placement environment. And also the black child was seen as being in a category that would be more high incidence or more stigmatizing, like emotionally disturbed. And also too, I also did ran another analysis on does ethnic match matter? If it's a black psychologist looking at the black child, are they less likely to view it as problematic? And sure enough, they were. And so what that tells me is that number one, you know, kids will be aggressive. Most children will be um, at some point in time. And so what that tells me is that we absolutely need to do our due diligence of understanding how bias plays out, especially in the education system for our children and how it plays out as adults too. But we need to understand bias. We need to understand what's happening for our kids in the classroom. We need to better train um, everyone, teachers included, psychologists, um, if we are being underrepresented in these fields, um, especially when you're a decision maker, a stakeholder, a psychologist, then we need to make the effort, extra effort to make sure that these people are culturally competent and that they are able to see our black children and not view them as more problematic than their white peers, hmm. especially when they have so much um, power in terms of how their record looks, where they go. Um, what spaces they can enter into and how safe those spaces are, how understood they feel, how much they might thrive, even academically thrive, um, mm -hmm. in whatever environment that they're in. So all of these things are integral and very, very important for us to understand and build cultural competence moving forward. Hmm. Awesome. I also want to say, too, I do see a lot of the, <laughs> the chat. Um, and I definitely do want to comment as well, because I think one thing that happens with a lot of our kids is that we label hyper black boys um, specifically as quick to have ADHD. You know, anyone who, any black boy who's non-compliant, ADHD. And what happens is they get put on some type of stimulant as a result of that. Um, and these stimulants are pretty, um, you know, pretty serious. And so what happens with a lot of times is yes, they are over-medicated and we see that even with regard to adults. Um, of black people who are um, seen by hospitals or doctors, oftentimes they're either not provided with any type of mental health treatment, about half or not, and if they are, they're often given a lot more harsh or more stigmatizing diagnoses, so schizophrenia, or they're more likely to get um, bipolar disorder. And so then they're more often being put on a lot higher dosages of medication um, and things that can be a lot of times misdiagnosed. So not to say that um, these diagnoses don't exist because they absolutely do. There are black people who have schizophrenia and bipolar disorder and they absolutely need um, first line of treatment, which is medication and also therapy. But also, too, there is a lot of misdiagnosis happening. And on top of that, there are a lot of people who are very biased in how they're saying something looks to them. You know, the same way Mikhail kind of mentioned was if you see a little white girl who, you know, is nervous and you say she has anxiety and you see a, a black girl who's, you know, has the same level of nervousness and you say that she's schizophrenic or emotionally disturbed. And now you're talking about a totally different class. And now you're talking about totally different medication and a totally different um, just 
insight in terms of what you're trying to do and how you're treating them. And so all of those things really do matter. Hmm. Hmm. Thank you. Sounds Absolutely. Good. And I'm just going to shout out Jean right here and let's see if we can answer his question. So Dr. Oliver, do you believe children of Caribbean descent experience a higher degree of aggression based on their upbringing? And I'm just going to add a little caveat, perhaps the accent, because if you hear a different accent and with that type of aggression, you're going to hear it with different type of ears. I'm just going to say. Mm -hmm. I was more so laughing because he put hashtag baton, which, <laughs> which means spanking. <laughs> um, so do I believe that children of Caribbean descent experience higher um, degrees of aggression? Um, it is possible. Um, we There have been studies that show, a lot of times we rely on research, right? And so a lot of times research, we are underrepresented in research as well. So there's not a lot of research out there that could um, really substantiate some of these claims. However, from my own experience, I absolutely believe that Black kids in general, I think, um, experience can experience higher levels of aggression um, just based on what they're dealing with in, in life. I think it's possible for Caribbean um, kids to be dealing with that. I think a lot of times, especially for Caribbean families, even working in the school systems, um, you know, I'll get a kid who, you know, their parents talk about spanking them and I'm like, no, you can't do that in America. <laughs> like, you cannot leave marks on your children. You cannot do that. And a lot of times, you know, it is, there have been studies that show that when you spank, a lot of spanking and disciplining will be out of anger and frustration and it'll be um, excessive. Uh, and even if it might not leave marks, it can be very excessive and it doesn't necessarily teach what's intended. So it might be that, you know, you're saying, Hey, don't do that. But because it's also not explained, a lot of kids will, you know, learn that guess what when i don't like something i hit when i don't like something or don't agree with something or when i feel threatened i go to anger i go to you know something that is i need to literally like get this out and so instead of working through whatever's happening emotionally they're externally working through it and so that can look like a lot of different things so absolutely i think that it's possible mm -hmm. so Speaking of uh, baton, right? Speaking of that, um, it, it reminded me, you know, you think about, you know, as a Christian, you think about the Bible, um, spare the rod, spoil the child, right? You think about all those folks who know who they are and whose they are, mm -hmm. right? And yet still have things that they are trying to work out. They yeah. might be plagued by demons or whatever the case may be. Mm -hmm. What would you say to those folks of faith who always say, forget therapy all you need is jesus yahweh whomever right yeah. what would you say to those folks and how should they approach or think about or maybe you know reprogram their thinking about therapy and the importance of it yeah absolutely so i think that you know i grew up in church i think for most black families you know church is a staple in our community probably to keep us sane in terms of living in this world um and a part of that is, you know, you don't need therapy. You need Jesus. You need to pray more. You're not praying hard enough. You're not really having faith. And I think that it can be both ends, right? Because a lot of times it's like, well, just pray. And we don't also talk about, okay, but we can also do the work too. Faith without works is dead. So the reality is that I need you to have faith, but I also need you to do the work. And what that entails is, actually seeking 
um, professional services. You know, God created the same way that he created doctors is the same way that he created therapists as well. So, you know, how do we reconcile? How does it make sense that, you know, if you're running a fever, okay, we, uh, you know, being in the church can justify, all right, going to the ER and trusting, you know, uh, any practitioner, but yet if we are under immense distress mentally, it's like, oh no, I can't seek psychological services. Like that's a big no-no. That should not happen. Like, how does that make sense? Then if that's the case, then we shouldn't be seeking any services. We shouldn't, we also shouldn't be drinking our holistic tea either to help us overcome whatever you know we want to overcome. Because at the end of the day, um, I, I really believe that everything can work together. It doesn't have to be and or, or this or that. It can be both. It can be drinking your herbal tea. Um, and it can be also going to church and having faith in God. And it can also be talking to someone regularly to work through kind of the everyday practical steps of what it means to um, have depression, to have anxiety that can be very crippling. Um, it, it can work together in a system. And I think that we have to shift our perspective, especially in our community, our black community, in terms of, you know, we can have it all. It doesn't have to be one or the other. Absolutely. And I love that because as the world loves to remind us, we are different, but obviously, right? In a, in a fantastic, beautiful, wonderful way, but you shouldn't have a, a one-size-fits-all approach, especially especially when our circumstances are different. So it kind of reminds me of a, let's say, a psychological term such as Stockholm Syndrome, mm-hmm. where essentially you identify more favorably with your your captor, really. And if you think about things like African diaspora, how often do we see things go misdiagnosed like Stockholm syndrome throughout the world? Absolutely. It is, you know, it's, I feel like everything, even treatment, even therapy, it's individualized. You know, we, the same way, anyone who has kids knows you can't raise all your kids the exact same way. You know, different personalities need different things. You know, different people might respond to, you know, you just lecturing them or certain people might be like, all right, I need to back off and let them do them. You know, so in the same way as a therapist, I absolutely don't treat every single client that I see um, with depression or with anxiety the exact same way. I can't because I have to tailor it to what they specifically need, right? And so that being said, if your anxiety looks like, um, you know, it only happens around large crowds or your stomach hurts when you're about to take a test or when you get in front of social settings, you, you know, ultimately avoid it and stay home. Um, I can't treat you the same way that I would treat someone else who's dealing with anxiety that looks very different, um, who might have anxiety, but literally is on, is an extrovert, but on the inside, it is all, you know, going wonkers and they need help with kind of settling themselves or calming themselves in the moment. So I think that individualization is imperative to good treatment. You know, we need to treat everyone as individuals. Yes, there's still a baseline, you know, that we have a guideline that we go by, but we need to look at the individual. What's happening for you? What's distressing you? When you experience this, what are you thinking? What are you feeling? What are you believing? What meaning are you attaching to that that is unhelpful for you? You know, what did you learn as a child that might have been helpful for your survival, but maybe right now it's not working for you anymore? 
And so how do we shift the thinking? How do we work through that? How can we, you know, grow? These are all part, parts of that. Mm -hmm. Thousand percent. And I have to shout out Dr. Oliver here who sent us this wonderful meme and it's completely factual. Trauma until it's processed and healed becomes your mind's operating system. It controls how you function. And we see a lot of people malfunctioning mentally, emotionally, spiritually out in the world. But at the end of the day, we all understand and observe that the world is designed for people to malfunction. So if you don't essentially get in line, then you're going to be, you know, chastised. Absolutely. 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 So <clears throat> Dr. Oliver, I have a question for you. So pre-Rona, um, I gave a presentation Black History Month, which was entitled uh, Black Minds Matter, uh, Miseducation, Media and Mental Health. And I talked about a number of different things, you know, really walk folks through a number of different pieces. Um, and, you know, one of the things that the, the, the great Paul Mooney talks about, um, the comedian, uh, he talks about folks always complaining about the race card, the race card, the race card. He said his question is, I'm wondering how it even got in the deck. You keep talking about this race card. I'm wondering how it got in the deck, right? So one of the slides that I did was really a play on that. And I talked about how the deck is stacked against folks, particularly in predominantly white institutions. And here's just a snapshot of the things that I listed. I listed colonized curriculum, double consciousness, economic inequality, food insecurity, internalized oppression, imposter syndrome, post-traumatic slave syndrome, racial fatigue, racialized stress, systemic racism, stereotype threat, and trauma, of course. I also shared with them some of the research insights, which is increased rates of depression, suicide in black youth, stigma associated with mental illness in the black community, as we've been talking about, culture of not seeking help, lack of black psychologists, counselors, and need for culturally informed interventions. I say all those things to ask this question. You talked about representation, and I'm big on representation because I always talk about the importance of having windows and mirrors. Windows allow folks to see into someone else's life. Mirrors allow them to see themselves being reflected. And I think there's a lot of times when our students of color particularly have lots of windows, but don't necessarily have many mirrors. They don't see themselves, particularly as it pertains to psychologists or school counselors or whomever might be their dean, etc. Can you please speak to how important representation is or how important it is for you to deal with something or unpack something so intimate as your trauma, your, your troubles with a person who gets you so you don't even have to get through that part in order for you to start unpacking stuff? Can you, can you talk to people about why that's so important? Absolutely. So I'll give even a personal anecdote. Um, I, majority of my life, I grew up in Georgia and I remember having one black male teacher in high school. That was it. Um, that was it until I reached college. And um, I actually had several black professors, but it wasn't necessarily in my major. It's because I also took classes that crossed into Africana studies. And so majority of my professors there were black. And I must tell you, there was so much more familiarity there was so much more um, drive and push and conversation that generated um, in those classes. And I think that, you know, personally for, I think almost most people can survive in predominantly white institutions or structures. I think that we 
because we're, we make up 13% of the population, we are forced to, right? But the reality is that what if that was flipped? You know, how, how would we behave? How would we think differently? What would we think about ourselves? You know, I'm, I am sometimes find myself being more comfortable some, in, in the, like in high school, I was more comfortable being in predominantly white spaces than I was being in predominantly black spaces that were of education or like outside of realms of like church, you know, because that was my norm, right? And so when another thing too, is that how many people of color did you see growing up who went into a field that you wanted to go into? You know, I mean, Barack Obama was elected when I was in pretty much in college. So the reality is that if I'm not seeing black doctors, how can I know that I wanna be one? Or, or how does it register into my reality that that's a true possibility? Yes, it can be a far out reach for me, but what if, how is that a true possibility for me? And I think representation is imperative. Um, if I, I firmly believe that if we actually had more psychologists, that we could more quickly reconcile a lot of um, the mental health distress in our community. Um, one, because there's just more people doing the work, but also two, because I think more people would feel a lot more comfortable. I think a lot of people, rightfully so, are like, mm, I'm not really feeling this. How is this person going to understand me? Or the fact that you have to explain, you know, certain racism that happens or the fact that you have to explain, you know, um, discomfort around white people to a white person. Like that's uncomfortable for anybody. Um, whether you are of color, whether you're talking to a man about an issue with, you know, someone who is being sexist, it is uncomfortable. It can be uncomfortable and distressing. And so, that's why a lot of the same way women will prefer to have a female gynecologist is the same way you can absolutely have a preference to seek a woman of color or a man of color as your counselor, especially to deal with, you know, a lot of issues that are around race or around your own experience. So I think representation is imperative. And I think that's why I would absolutely encourage our youth to, you know, look to someone like me to see that, Psychologists exist, it's not just this white world. Psychologists exist that are black, they're brown, they're all types of colors. And guess what? Like I could relate, you know, and, and talk to you about, you know, TikTok, Lizzo, Beyonce, and we could also have a conversation about race. And we can mm -hmm. also have a conversation about depression. And we can also have a conversation around trauma, around abuse, around how you saw certain problematic elements or you learn problematic things from your parents that you are trying to unwind and unlearn and learn a new perspective. So all of that I think can be done and be done best with someone who is in a sphere in a sphere that looks like you. Hmm. And I think representation is critical. Hmm. Thank you. Absolutely. And then I had a follow-up question for Dr. Oliver based upon one of the wonderful memes that she sent. In your professional opinion, could you give a bit of a synopsis of the impact of racism, especially in our community, and of course, brown communities as well, or any communities, mm -hmm. on mental health? Absolutely. So I think, you know, one, we deal with racism so often that I, I sometimes don't even know if people connect what they're feeling to racism and experiences in their mental health. So all of these in this meme, like feeling disconnected, lonely, you know, second guessing things, decreased hope, um, increased survival mode, um, decreased trust, feelings of powerlessness, trauma, 
you know, existential questioning of like, well, did that just happen? Because, you know, am I just being overly sensitive? Like, was this a moment that was a microaggression? Was it a macroaggression? Like, am I taking this too seriously? If I'm the only person that looks like me in this room and I say something, will I be portrayed as an angry black woman? How should I react in this moment? So we have these, you know, things that we think about, especially as people of color living in this world of a lot of times we have to, in order to protect our sanity, a lot of times we will cover up or not talk about things that need to be addressed in the moment. So there's a reluctance to speak out. Um, I think one of the great things about the movement that's kind of happening right now is that it's allowing for a little more room for people of color and black people specifically to speak to injustice, to speak to racism, to speak to how it impacts daily life. You know, um, even the fact of like, you know, I've seen so many videos, memes about like, you know, being black in whatever space and what that means, what that looks like on a regular basis. And I think even just getting it out is a primary step to working through it. Hmm. Hmm. And so I guess the, the the drive home the point a little bit more so too, thinking about where we are in America, right? Okay. And you're thinking about us living in this racist, sexist, patriarchal society that is plagued with systemic racism, oppression, et cetera. What would be your tips, your words of encouragement for that young person of color, particularly that young woman of color, mm -hmm. who is thinking about navigating these spaces that are probably uncharted territory for them and their family in some cases, um, particularly where it might be that they have to go outside of their community in order for them to step foot into a predominant white institution in order for them to get a doctorate or whatever the case may be. What would be some of your best practices or some tips or words of wisdom and encouragement for those folks who might be stifled at every single turn or might be given that negative self-talk to themselves because of internalized oppression or anxiety or stress or trauma? And then all the other things, like you talked about being in internal and external. What would be your advice for that person who might want to be where you are now, um, but is like a little shaky about what they might do? In terms of wanting to be like a psychologist or in terms of just wanting to work through some of the kind of dynamics that are at I would say both because there might be some folks who might want to work and be a psychologist and they might, because of the the, the, the stigma to therapy period, mm -hmm. they might not even think that the job that they're going to do or pursuing as a career is legitimate, right? So they might have that piece too. So if you could speak to both of those things, like how do you get over those humps or those barriers? Whether they want to become a doctor like you or whether they be, want to become anything else, like how, how do they work work through that, realizing that the world is going to send them some negative messages every now and then? Yeah, absolutely. So I think, um, you know, if I were to speak kind of words of encouragement, I would say, you know, you matter. Your life matters. Your future matters. Um, we, like I mentioned in the beginning of this um, stream, was that, you know, we are a resilient people. And that doesn't mean that you won't experience hardship. You know, for every yes, you might get 10 to 100 no's, but you keep pushing because it matters to you. And I think that especially in this field, you know, I was the only black person in my cohort um, throughout all five years. And, you know, that was something that was at a lot of times troubling and at a lot of times very difficult. Mm. And I think that the reality is when you are the first in anything, so whether you're the first in your family to really speak to 
these issues and whether you're the first person to become a psychologist or enter the mental health field in your community. Um, understand that you are not just doing this for me, right? So like I, I entered in this field, not just because like, I just wanted this title or whatever the case may be. No, I actually entered into this field because I was like, yo, I wanna help people that look like me. I wanna help people heal. I wanna help people work through things that we don't talk about enough, you know, that we experience, that we see, that we kind of turn a blind eye to, but learning how do we do it and how can I curate, you know, the guidelines that people have curated for, for years and years and, and filter that into spaces of, that, of people that look like me, of people who, communities that look like me, communities of color who, who need this work, you know, and who are seeking help. I want to be able to offer that. And so I would encourage boys and girls, young people of all ages to, you know, understand the power and influence you have the same way, you know, social media and views on TikTok are like amazing. You can influence people and generations in a way that's positive. And maybe for some people that's, you know, doing things on social, on a social media platform. And maybe for some people that's getting that degree in, in order to thrive in whatever field you want to get into. And then I would also say for the people who not necessarily are looking into getting into the field, but are just looking to, all right, where do I start? How do I start? You know, in whatever sector I'm in, whatever family I'm in, it starts with one, just one. If you are committed to yourself, you know, there's a reason why on the airplanes, they tell you to put your gas mask on before you, you know, put on the gas mask of anyone else. It's mm -hmm. because it's imperative for you to pour from a full vessel. You can't pour from an empty cup. Okay, so the reality is, let's work through some of that stuff, you know, and a lot of times, you know, people think that, well, I've gotten over that, you know, or like I worked through it or like I'm, I just don't want to deal with or talk to. I want to avoid this painful place because it doesn't feel good. You're darn right. It's, it, this work is not going to feel good. Mm -hmm. I guarantee you, you know, when, when you sit in my office, there, there might be tears. There might be very difficult conversations but I will provide you with, and your therapist will provide you with the tools to work through it. It may not be comfortable, but my, my whole purpose is not to make you feel better, it's to get better. Hmm. And if you are committed to getting better, then all you have to be is that one. I'm, all I need is commitment to try. And so if you are committed to trying, then guess what? You can begin to do the work to move forward and to move through. I love that. Get better, not feel better. That's real rap. I love that. And we actually have a follow-up question from Sister Shirley. Mm -hmm. So, Dr. Oliver, you touched on adults not being able to open open to therapy due to cultural norms, etc. Mm -hmm. Can you provide insight on youth, specifically teens, not wanting to engage in mental health treatment as mm. much as needed? Oh, that's very good. Um, yeah, so I think that one of the key roadblocks to mental health treatment and getting services is the fact that a lot of people may not be motivated. Um, a lot of people may not want to engage for various reasons, whether they've had negative experiences themselves with healthcare providers, mental health care providers, or you know they've had a long history of people leaving. You know, and so the reality is, so you want me to pour my heart out to you, and then like what? You're either gonna like 
tell somebody and snitch on me or you're going to leave me after you know three months or whatever the case may be so a lot of people might be very hesitant you know or very resistant um i've experienced that too you know um where people might be very hesitant and be like well is this for me what am i going to gain out of it and a lot of times you know, especially living in like a very microwave society, it's like we want results now, you know? So so kind of seeing, okay, a month down the line, two months down the line, like what is that realistically gonna look like? But I think that, you know, even studies have shown kids benefit tremendously by having one person of influence in their lives. It doesn't even need to be like five best friends. <laughs> like it doesn't even need to be, you know, like they don't even need to be the most popular child in the in the school. Mm. All they need is one, you know, one adult who's secure, one adult who is stable, one friend in their school. So all they need is one, one person who can provide some stability. And when people find or have that stability and, and they can securely kind of attach to that foundational point person, they can then kind of lean into, okay, maybe it is okay and safe for me to indulge in something that is very foreign to me. You know, mental health treatment is not something that, again, like we all are cool with, comfortable with, or are familiar with. But once we have that, we can lay the groundwork to be like, okay, now I feel somewhat more comfortable and safe to express myself in this capacity with this person who, you know, I didn't grow up with, so to speak. Hmm. Hmm. That's awesome. I don't know if it's too early to ask this question, uh -huh. but I'm going to ask it anyway. <laughs> uh, <laughs> So when we think about compassion fatigue yeah. and all the stuff that you have to do on a daily basis mm -hmm. to prepare yourself to serve others, yeah. stuff that you might have to help other people unpack that you now carry, mm -hmm. how or what does self-care look like for you, doctor, counselor, yeah. and what should self-care look like for others? So what does that self-care look like for you? And what does that self-care look like for others? Absolutely. So <laughs> that is a great question because I think right now self-care is a buzzword, right? Like we hear it all the time, we see it, and it literally looks like, you know, going to the spa. But the reality is with the current climate, you're not going to a spa. <laughs> you're not traditionally um, having these same exact outlets. You can't necessarily go to places that you might have gone to before or had certain spaces, um, especially for kids too, you know, even groups like even camp, you know, has been canceled for most kids. So the reality is what do you do, especially from home? Um, and what does self-care look like? Is it just binge watching Netflix? Is it just doing your nails? What, it, what does that mean? And so I would, you know, I would argue that self-care more than it's the act of, you know, doing something you're supposed to do, it's doing the things or engaging in certain behaviors that are healthy, that are also life-giving, and that can also help to fuel your cup. So what I mean by that is that um, self-care for me might look very different for you. You know, one thing that I love, I, anyone who knows me knows that I love movies. I love to watch things and I love to just like relax. I love sleep, you know? So like, all of these things for me are self-care. And on top of that, reading books. I love that as well. Um, and also creating and curating spaces for me to um, have more life-giving, fulfilling conversations, even like these. I absolutely love these talks and conversations. Um, 
socializing with people, with like-minded people who don't just speak to you about, you know, things that might be plaguing you or them in the moment, but that can also speak into your life, right? So I think that there is power in, you know, what we consume, how much we consume, and what kind of content that we're consuming. You know, is it focused on, you know, all of the 911 negative things happening in this world, or is it also fueled by things that are uplifting, things that are, are well in this world, things that, that are good? And I think that all of that is all encompassing into self-care. Hmm. Thank you. Absolutely. And so then I had a, a follow-up question or just a question in general, excuse me. So as I'm sure we all know, the human brain is designed to become accustomed to any type of scenario. So what type of guidance would you give developing minds, already developed minds, to understand that certain things shouldn't be accepted as normal in their life and give them that type of perspective, but it also in a way for them to make their own decisions as well. Cause I know that's a delicate balance. Yeah, absolutely. I think one of the first questions I would ask people is like, if you could close your eyes and imagine the perfect ideal life, what would it look like? What would you be doing? How would you be behaving differently? Um, what would it look like for you to go into a store? Would anything change? What would it look like for you to go into work? What would be different about that? Would your job be different? Would your friends be different? Would you have different conversations? And I think that that starts to bring more insight into things that, that people might not even realize are unwanted, unhelpful habits. So for example, if one of the changes would be your job, some people are in some toxic environments um, to the point where you feel so depleted every single day or there's so much downing, like self-downing that happens in certain spaces that we just think it's normal, right? Like, you know, it's almost as if you are like likening it to abusive situations. It's, it's become more psychologically normal or normative that to deviate from that almost feels unnatural because we are so accustomed to one thing. And so that's why I like to ask people, okay, if it was an ideal situation, what would it look like for you? And okay, so if it looks like, you know what, a different job, then how can we get there? And it's not gonna be a one-stop shop, like, all right, quit tomorrow and then go on unemployment and then just like not really figure things out. It's gonna be tactical and practical, but also looking to how do we take steps to living the life that we wanna live? A lot of times we feel stuck in whatever situations that we're in, whether it's like, well, I chose this, you know, I went to you know, this school, I'm with this partner and we feel a lot of guilt a lot of shame in wanting to deviate from something that we quote unquote chose. But the reality is that there's freedom in choice. And the same way you might have chosen to be in a situation that you've realized is, un is toxic or not serving you anymore is the same way that you can choose to be in a very different situation that allows you to thrive and be in a healthier space. And so as long as you're willing to do that work to be like, okay, what does that look like for me? How do I want and what do I imagine my life looking like? What am I willing to tolerate? And what am I not willing to put up with and tolerate anymore? Then we can begin to shift our perspective into here's what I want. And if this is what I want, let me take active steps daily to achieve that. Awesome. 
Wonderful. Thank you. All right. So it's 712. So let's, <laughs> let's get juicy. All right. So good brother Josh, um, he has another um, podcast, if you will, stream called Poetic Charm. Mm -hmm. And they often talk about relationships. Yeah. Now, um, my wife and I, I think you might know her, but my wife and I, <laughs> we have uh, seven years of marriage coming up next Monday. Congrats. Um, well, well, thank you. Thank you. Um, and thinking about those folks who may be in a relationship, romantic or otherwise, uh -huh. do you have best practices or tips or words of advice for how do you engage in these relationships in terms of communication, in terms of the baggage that we might bring into our relationships? Like, what are, what are some of your thoughts about those things for the folks who are listening, who might be in a relationship, might be hoping or looking for a relationship, might have just got out of a relationship that was toxic, might be in a relationship that's toxic. Can you speak to relationships in general from your standpoint and perspective? Yeah, absolutely. So I think one thing with relationships that I, I think is important to start with is what do you value, right? And so your values then speak to um, what's important to you and then speaks to you know, what are some non-negotiables for you? And then everything else might just be things that are like, all right, this might be nice to have, but I can tolerate, you know, living with some difference, right? So when I talk about the, what do you value? You know, if, you know, religion or something is of utter importance to you or of high importance, this is something that you value. The reality is you're probably not going to compromise on that, right? Or um, if you're talking about um, something along the lines of family, you know, or having children. These are things that you might value. So you might not compromise on these things, but you might compromise on other things like, you know, uh, political views, or you might comp com um, compromise on, you know, what shows that you watch, or you might compromise on what fields that you're in or just differences. You know, I like this type of food. You like that type of food. I'm an introvert. You're an extrovert. You can compromise on those things. So I think that there are important things to realize. This is what I value. These are my, um, you know, things that are incredibly important to me that I, I'm not going to be able to really tolerate anything outside of this. And then for the things that, you know, you can work within, work within the confines or work within the realm of what someone else might give, you know, do the work. And I think a lot of people, a lot of times when they find a partner, right, um, they think that, okay, well, now I need to you know, not just be with someone who presented themselves to me in the beginning, they'll try to be with the idea of their partner, like the, the perception of like what their partner can be. And so now it's like build a man or build a woman. Now you're curating your partner into you know, adjusting and shifting in the exact way that you want them to adjust and shift. And the reality is that most people are not gonna drastically change, right? So like the person that has presented themselves, their personality, is their personality. You know, if they were introverted, they're not gonna automatically become an extrovert. Highly unlikely. They might at first, you know, start to go out with you a little more, but the reality is that like they will default back into you know what is innate and what is normal to them. And so I think that, you know, with relationships, I think a, a key thing is that unconditional acceptance, right? So accepting your partner for who they are and accepting that, yeah, you might prefer that they do a couple of things different, go outside with you every once in a while, you know, wear different types of clothes, whatever the thing, may, the case may be. You might prefer different things, but it doesn't have to be something that you have to demand of your partner. Because the minute you start to put demands, 
now you have unrealistic expectations and now you're really setting yourself up for failure because that person might not and probably won't meet those demands. Hmm. And so I think that comes into doing that work in relationships and both partners, right? Because the reality is like, let's say you're someone who, you know, has difficulty um, apologizing, right? Hmm. But then your partner also has this trauma history of having difficulty forgiving. So let's say you learn how to apologize, but your partner doesn't know how to forgive, then what? You know, so once you learn that, it's still unbalanced. There's still gonna be conflict. There's still gonna be things that you need to work through. And so I think that the reality is that both people need to do the work in terms of working through things. And as I'm sure you know, in marriage, like year one is absolutely not the same as year seven. People grow and change. And so that work continues. Even with you know cultural competence, like we mentioned earlier, it's not a thing you reach, it's not a plateau you reach. It's an ever evolving thing that we always work on. And I think that's the same thing in relationships. We need to seek um, that work all the time. Beautiful. I love that unconditional acceptance. Mm -hmm. I mean, I mean, for lack of better words, I feel like we live in a society of micromanagers. And as a <laughs> introvert, as an Aquarian, that's just something that I will never ever tolerate because mm -hmm. you essentially want to, like you said, or like how Mick said initially, was to build a bear, right? In yeah. terms of you trying to curate a relationship mm -hmm. as opposed to accepting people for who they are. What's yeah. the point of being with this specific person if you want them to be like someone else? Go be right. with that other person. Yeah, absolutely. And so, you know, don't be with someone for the potential that you think or what you would like for them. But the reality is to be them with them for them. And probably the things that you once accepted in the beginning you know, in the, in the, after a year or two now is like, well, that's unacceptable. I need you to fix this. But, you know, is that fair? And is that realistic <laughs> is the bigger question. And is that really helpful in the dynamic that's happening right now? And so I think if both people are really committed to working with each other, then they will do that work for working within what they can change. And if they are committed to accepting each other for all of the personality and quirks that come along with that, then they'll thrive. Hmm. Awesome. Absolutely. Spoken like a true Pisces on the border of Aquarius. <laughs> awesome. 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 Um, in terms of, you know, so I usually do a lot of hiring. Mm -hmm. And one of the things I often ask in education is I ask folks about their educational philosophy. Um, their practices, pedagogy, et cetera, just to see if they would be a good fit, if they're jiving, et cetera. Um, I know we have your information that's going to be inside the live stream and it should already be there in the link, et cetera. Um, and I know you're starting to build and you're going to do a number of different things moving forward, but I'm not going to ask you what your brand is, but what is your philosophy or what is your approach or what is your, like, if I, what is Dr. Ashley Oliver synonymous with when it pertains to educating, when it pertains to counseling, when it pertains to being that person who hashtag unpacks that. What, what like what what do you what do we get with a Dr. Ashley Oliver? Thank you. Great question. So I my philosophy would be um, I am essentially helping people unpack that one luggage case at a time. <laughs> so what that means is that you know I'm really looking to help people live their best lives, to live purposefully, live intentionally, and live fruitfully, 
right? So that means unpacking a lot of the things that we learned as kids to survive that may not be helping us right now. That a lot of the feelings that, you know, might be negative emotions, but they're unhealthy negative emotions, right? So a lot of the, you know, anger, depression, um, working through those things and figuring out, okay, how can we think about this and what can we do in this situation to start to feel something different? How can our perspective shift in terms of you know, what's happening that way that we're not drowning with the insanity of what's happening in this world, but we can literally look to things and say, okay, I've, I'm walking through this and I still can be okay and get through it. And so I am just committed and my work is really geared towards unpacking things, unpacking things that are comfortable, unpacking things that don't feel good. But the reality is, you know, the goal is not necessarily to feel better instantly. It's to get better. And if we get better, then we will be a-okay moving forward. So it doesn't matter what comes your way, you'll have healthy and more realistic and reasonable coping skills to work through it. Awesome. Awesome. Absolutely. And we have some amazing questions coming in. So people in the comments, if you have a question for Dr. Oliver, please don't hold back. Yeah. And I like that A-OK. You can kind of brand that <laughs> Ashley Oliver. OK, you can knowledge. I don't know what you want to do with it. But, you know. Thank you. Know. You're my yeah. new brand manager, Mikhail. That's, that's what I heard. <laughs> that was for free. That was for free. <laughs> I love it. I love it. And thank you guys for, you know, including my, all my information, everything in the description, check me out, just starting out. So I'm working to build and I'm excited. So for that person who's like teetering on the fence, mm -hmm. they're, they're brilliant. They've got their bachelor's. They may or may not have their master's. And they're like flirting with that idea of, you know what? I might go get my doctorate. No, nah, I'm not. It's like they about to jump into the double dutch circle. They don't know, right? So they're trying to figure that out. Mm -hmm. What would be your advice to help them think about that situation, whether or not it's the right thing for them or if it's not the right thing for them? Absolutely. So, um, you know, before they completely jump in, you know, the reality is the journey is long, but it's worth it. And so even if there is, any ounce of, of you that is thinking, you know what, I am committed to the mental health and well-being of people, and I really want to um, get the whatever credentials degree is necessary in order to do the work, I highly, highly, highly encourage you do it. It is worth it. And so I think that, you know, even for myself, I, I struggled a lot with like, because number one, I didn't even really know that there were different types of psychologists. I didn't even know what degree you get to become a psychologist when I first started out. Um, I was kind of like, wait, what? What do I do? What What do I go into? I, I kind of figured I would have to be a psychiatrist in order to work in this sector. What does that mean? And then I realized, oh, no, there's a separate branch. Like the people who actually sit down and not like on the TV where you mm -hmm. like have a couch and like very, you know, not so great examples of what therapy actually looks like. But the point is that these are things that, you know, I would actually say shadow people, you know, find somebody to see, hey, this is what I want to get into. And if you have any, any part of you that's like, you know what, I think I want to do it, do it. 
jump in the deep end, dive in, and I guarantee you it will be worth it. Beautiful. Absolutely. So essentially, just a uh, shadow, Dr. Ashley Oliver. Her uh, Instagram is in the description. And Professor Yisrael clearly struck a chord here with the dating topic. <laughs> we have a follow-up question. So Dr. Oliver, what are best practices when dating to identify these non-negotiable? Oh, good question. So I think um, one thing I would say are the things that I think when you're talking about dating, it's important to self-reflect first, right? So thinking about yourself, what's important for you? If the same way um, you were going about it, seeing as to you know how you choose friends or how you choose jobs, what are what's important things to you? Um, and again, I think that there's a difference between like, okay, the person needs to X, Y, and Z, have a job, da, da, da. So as opposed to, to making it them-centered, make it you-centered. So like, what's important to me? What's important to me is family. What's important to me is faith. What's important to me is, and fill in whatever blank for you. Um, I think that a lot of times when we're trying to figure out, okay, how do I find somebody or, or how do I know that this relationship is, will be fruitful or will work? The reality is I would love to tell you that like there's this one size fits all and it's just gonna work out. A lot of it is gonna be chance um, and trusting in your own self that you are the expert in you. I facilitate that expert a little bit, but you are the expert in you. And the reality is trusting in what you want, what you find to be you know, a good in a partnership, not what's been told to you is good or not what you have seen in the past that was unhealthy, i.e. someone who's controlling and it doesn't allow you to thrive, someone who is literally going to be an ideal partner, which means that they value what you value, that they put, you know, ambition is a value for them and that's your number one value or, you know, faith is a value for them and that's your value as well. So I think aligning some of those values, that way you can have a core foundation and everything else is going to be many branches. Everything else might be, you know, a little different, but you can work within the confines of that. Beautiful. So I think, I think this is um, a question that you kind of hit on already, um, but you had this journey. You mm -hmm. know, folks who were here at the beginning, um, they heard your bio. Folks who weren't here at the beginning, they can read your bio. So yeah. you've had this journey. You kind of talked, you kind of touched upon it a little bit. What have you learned about yourself, Dr. Oliver, through this journey? And what would you say to those who are trying to, spend more time with themselves, figure yeah. out themselves, learn more about themselves. Like, like what, what would be your words of advice about how to approach that? What have you learned about yourself along this journey? And how would you encourage others to endeavor to find out a little bit more about themselves too? Mm -hmm. I think one of the biggest things I've learned about myself is that self-talk is crucial. Um, one of the things that people often think is like, oh, you're talking to yourself, you must be crazy. No, like self-talk and really self-examination is critical into gaining more insight and awareness as to how you function and what works for you and how you're experiencing everyday life. I think one of the biggest takeaways that I've learned is that, you know, the way in which you talk to yourself, and I'm not talking about talking audibly or aloud to yourself. I mean, when you're in a workspace and you're literally like, oh my gosh, I'm so stupid. Why did I send that email? Or you are in a space with friends and you're like, I don't want to look like an idiot. I need to like have 
more drinks. Or you're like, you know what? I don't want to deal with so-and-so because they're getting on my nerves. I'm just going to drink myself into a drunken mess. And the reality is we absolutely need to do the work of like, how are we talking to ourselves? You know, what does that sound like? You know, is it harsh? Is it mean? Is it reflective of, you know, ways in which your parents might've spoken to you that, you know, is not even helpful? Or is it loving? You know, oftentimes I don't think that a lot of our self-talk is very loving. Mm -hmm. And so one of the things I've learned to adjust is how I do speak to myself in different situations. How much grace do I give myself? You know, when something doesn't go my way, am I like, oh my God, I'm such a failure? Or am I looking at it like, you know, I failed at this, I might have failed at this, but I personally am not a failure. I'm not condemning myself, I'm condemning what happened. And so thinking about and making those adjustments in my perspective have been critical in terms of really reflecting and doing the work to be like, all right, you know what? This work is not always easy, but it can be done. And the reality is when I do it, I guarantee you being on the other side, it will absolutely feel amazing because mm -hmm. you will realize not only your worth, your value, you will accept yourself and begin to love yourself to a point that you didn't even know was possible. So I think that that is critical for people. Thousand percent. And speaking as an Aquarian and an intellectual and an introvert, and an only child, I fully endorse this message of having a healthy communication format with yourself, right? So we see even athletes do this on whatever, you know, ground that they compete in. So sometimes they have to be like, all right, come on, Josh, get in the zone. And they could be saying it out loud or they could be saying it internally, but th there needs to be a, a positive reinforcement there. And yeah. I, I love the examples you said, because how often... And I feel like society does put this into our in our consciousness to be like automatically, oh, you're such an idiot for doing X, Y, and Z. Like that's a that's a default reaction. So I feel like we have to retrain and reprogram our minds to not do that and then to automatically do what you're talking about and be more introspective. Yeah. Exactly. Because as a fellow Aquarian and introvert, <laughs> particularly if you don't talk to other people, <laughs> it's important for you to have positive self-talk mm -hmm. if you're only talking to yourself and a few others. <laughs> <laughs> Y'all are funny. But, but it's true. It is important. you know. And the reality is people might be like, well, I don't really talk to myself. But like, what are some of those things that you're believing about yourself? You know, like if something happens... Um, are you believing that you are a failure, that you are stupid, that you are ugly? You know, a lot of a lot of the ways in which we believe things about ourselves or a lot of the even just messaging, you know, we can look to almost anything, especially as a black woman. You know, there's so much messaging around the way that we look, the way that we carry ourselves. You know, don't be don't be too loud. Don't be too assertive. You're going to be aggressive. You're going to be deemed angry. And so the reality is that, you know, it's important and imperative to check in and see like, okay, what is it that I'm believing about myself in these spaces? And so really having that dialogue and checking our own selves to be like, okay, is this helpful for me? Is this reasonable for me to be thinking that way? And am I accepting the person that I am and allowing myself to, to thrive in that space? Absolutely. And I have another question, if you guys don't mind. So when we think about social media platforms like Instagram, what are some of the ways that we can combat the intense need for external 
validation? I would say limit the Instagram. No, okay. <laughs> in all seriousness, I, I do think that, you know, the there is pros and cons, right, to instant gratification, right? So you see the quote unquote highlight reel of someone's life and that is reality, right? That is perceived reality. And so now that becomes the baseline for what you judge yourself off of. That becomes how you think about yourself, you know, but we're not putting into context like the face tune and the, you know, um, filters that are being used. We're just seeing it and, and consuming it all day long and thinking, well, if I don't have this, then I must be inadequate. You know, we're, we're ascribing some meaning to ourselves based on what we see. And so especially for young folks, you know, when they're constantly, constantly being fed this, you know, I think this is why, you know, it's imperative to get back to some of the like old school teaching where it's like, all right. Let's move away from our phones just a little bit and see what's actually around us. Go outside. You know, you will start to see or have a more well-rounded and balanced perception of what is actually happening. And also, too, even whether you're outside or whether you're on Instagram, just because you are seeing something does not mean that you have to have meaning behind everything that you see. It doesn't have to mean anything about you. It doesn't have to mean that you're inadequate if you don't have what you're seeing in front of you. So I think all of that goes in line with, you know, how you're talking to yourself, what you're saying back to yourself and what meaning you're, you know, ascribing to whatever is at hand. Absolutely. And we have a, another question from Clodis, who is also an educator and uh, special needs as well. What are the best practice methods to encourage self-confidence and grit in developing children? that's a great question. I think, you know, developing and encouraging self-confidence really needs to be a daily practice. And specifically, um, I think that that needs to start with, um, and I actually think uh, Claude said it earlier in the chat, you know, the positive uh, affirmations and the positive or more just rational self-talk, you know, and also the way that we, um, perceive reality. A lot of times we are perceiving things not as though as what it is. You know, a lot of times, especially for young girls, you know, a lot of times you'll hear things like, well, nobody likes me. You know, I um, must be ugly or like I am, you know, not popular. And it'll, it'll be a lot of more extremes to what they're thinking and feeling. And what they don't realize a lot of times is like, there's a lot of people that probably think similarly to them. The same people that they believe or perceive as not having those difficulties, have those same difficulties. So one is kind of, okay, you know what? Some, to some degree, our perception needs to shift, but also two, really affirming, okay, I need you to write down three compliments and three strengths every single day. And I need you to read it out loud. I need you to put on that uncomfortable or, or outfit that you think doesn't look cute on you because of the way that you look. I need you to wear it every single day and compliment yourself about it. And so these things are practices in terms of getting it into our minds that, you know, it's not the, you know, makeup or the difference in hair or the clothing that will quote unquote give you confidence. Cause we know plenty of people that are celebrities that have the world and literally, you know, are distressed in every way. And so the reality is that we need to start speaking that into ourselves, speaking that into our young people and giving them the tools to, to believe that they are fill in the blank, powerful, smart, 
beautiful, you know, whatever the case may be. And that needs to be said on a daily. Hmm. Amen. Amen to that. And also, I just wanted to let everyone know there are some black owned therapy resources in the description as well. In addition to Dr. Ashley Oliver, of course. Excellent. So if anyone is interested or might know someone who may be, I guess, you know, too tough to to seek such help or perhaps some developing minds that you think might benefit from this, these type of services as well, please don't hesitate to reach out to Dr. Ashley Oliver or any of these wellness and therapy ent entities, essentially. Excellent. This is an excellent list. And I really encourage everyone to, you know, share. The more that you have these conversations, whether it be in your family, your social circles, it will start to normalize all of this, mental health and wellness and everything else in general. So start to have these conversations. Absolutely. And I, I know that there are so many questions that were not asked. And I know there's going to be so many more things that happen that we'll need your expertise for. So mm -hmm. I'm sure if you're open to it, we would love to have you back later on um, to unpack some more stuff. Absolutely. I love you all. Love you guys. So I am more than happy to come back anytime. Beautiful. Thank you so much. And just for those who are watching and thank you once again for watching and listening and commenting. If anyone feels that you have a, a skill or a trait or a passion that you want to share with, with everyone, with the world, please contact us. We would love to have you on the show as well. Like, let's not forget Dr. Ashley Oliver was also a contributor in the comments as well. And now she's on the show. So please reach out to us. We would love to have you on the show. Word. Thank you, guys. I appreciate y'all. Absolutely. We appreciate you. We love you, Dr. Oliver. Proud of you. Thank y'all. <laughs> and I guess we can uh, we can wrap it up here for now until uh, until next time. Nice. <laughs> Until uh, part two. <laughs> but all right, guys, you enjoy the rest of your day and God bless to everyone. You repeat what they created and get power to hate. But worst of all, we disappoint all the greats. Black lives matter. Black lives matter. Yeah. Hey. Black lives matter. Black lives matter, yeah, hey, hey.